Welcome to the Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, my goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices, instead look for the processes and the questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. I'm Will Patch, Enrollment Marketing Leader at Niche, and my guest today is Jeremy Branch. Jeremy is the Senior Assistant Director of Enrollment Management for Penn State University. He's worked in admissions for 15 years and is an active member of the Pennsylvania Association for College Admissions Counseling, or PACAC having served on the Executive Committee, Professional Development Committee, Conference Planning Committee, and the Inclusion Access and Success Committee. Uh, you might also know him from being the president of PACAC currently. He has also served in the faculty, director, and dean of the Summer Institute for the Association. Amid all this, he somehow also finds time to host the fantastic and fun Bebo University podcast. Uh, if you haven't subscribed and give that a listen, you absolutely should. So welcome. Thanks for making time to chat today, Jeremy. Oh, thank you for having me, Will. It's nice to connect, my friend. You're one of those people that I've I've listened. You've been on my phone. You've been in my ear, and now <laughs> now we're talking. You know, as face to face as we can get currently. Well, I apologize for that. No one needs me on their phone and in their ear, <laughs> uh, but I appreciate you uh, connecting with me. It's it's one of the the wonders of social media, right? Yeah. Like all of a sudden, our networks are just expanding, and we're we know these people so well before we're in the same room with one another. So yeah. it's it's been cool getting to know you from a distance for a while, and and connecting now on the on this podcast is really special. So thanks for having me. I love it. I'm going to start out here with two questions, not that you need any warm-up at all. <laughs> so what's something that you tried that didn't work, and what did you learn from that? Oh, my goodness. A lot of things. But when I first thought of this question, I thought about mentoring, right? Because that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about. It's one of the things I do a ton of through Pennsylvania's ACAC and, and through even in Penn State and, and things of that nature. And I thought instantly of mentoring because one of the things that I've tried that didn't work and consistently does not work is when I try to mentor somebody who doesn't want to be mentored. Mm -hmm. And then I allow that frustration to get to me. I love the counseling profession, Will. I love it to death. It energizes me, the work, the camaraderie that we have in higher education, especially on the, in the counseling framework the ability we have to actually make a difference in people's lives. Th that is incredible. Every time I think about it, I get excited about it. And when I see other people come into the profession, I want them to be excited about it too. And I also want them to understand how serious what we do is. Because when you have an impact on somebody's life, we provide those fork in a road moments really for a lot of these students, whether we admit them or don't admit them, like their life can kind of turn out differently, right? They're going to have a different yeah. set of friends. Yep. They may meet their significant other in a, in a different way, different institution, different area. Like so much comes from this outside of just, hey, their career trajectory, right? Like mm -hmm. there's over 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States they're going to turn out well, <laughs> you yeah. know, we, we provide great education, but it's like those other things, those fringe things that are all, always kind of in the back of my mind. And so when somebody comes into the profession, whether it be within my own office or the profession at large, I really want them to understand that scope. Mm -hmm. And I want to be that, you know, person that they can bounce ideas off of or talk to about the profession. But as much as you find individuals who love receiving that help, that guidance, that direction, you also find those who don't want that at all. 
Mm-hmm. We have people who come into admissions counseling or school counseling who are kind of like, hey, I'm going to do it for a period of time and then I'm out. That's something that I've struggled with at times over mm-hmm. the years and trying to figure out a way to reach that individual is not always something that that's possible. And so mm-hmm. that's something that I've consistently had issues with or struggle with that didn't work. And and I've learned that mentoring has to be way more organic than that. One of the caveats to all of that will is that sometimes people just don't want it and you have to understand that and move on. Yeah. So that's, that's something that I've tried that, <laughs> that hasn't worked. Um, something that I've tried that I thought that wouldn't work. It has somehow mistakenly worked. I'd say is podcasting. You know, this is something that I wanted to do for a little bit. I'm glad it did not work out initially. I just could never seem to get it off the ground. And every time I was getting ready to start, there Mm -hmm. was either just some type of like little roadblock or something that I found out I didn't quite understand that would make me say, you know what, let me hold off for a second before I dive into this because the market is inundated with podcasts. It's a low barrier of entry. Everyone can do it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Everybody can do it. You have a, you have a computer, you have an iPhone. You have an iPad, you can start a podcast. And a lot of, you know, the the tech companies are doing a great job of inserting microphones into their devices nowadays mm-hmm. that don't sound half bad, yeah. right? And and people can podcast directly from that. So that's a great thing. That accessibility is awesome. It also means, though, that if people don't latch on to the way it sounds, first off, it's got to sound good. If they don't latch on to that, if it just seems low budget, they're not going to come back. And so I just kind of failed to get it going for over a year. And then finally, COVID and its fallout, one of the dualities of that, I always call it the duality of disruption, was that, you know what, all of a sudden I have some time to dive into this to make sure I've got the right tools to make sure I understand how to edit how to create content and things of that nature. And that that's actually been, been working mm-hmm. long answer to, to your first question. But those were the kind of the first two things that I thought of. I'm always interested with the idea of mentoring it. I mean, when you have an official program, that makes it easy. Someone who wants to be mentored can sign up. Yeah. Boom. But you always hear about the people who say, Oh, I, I didn't think I could make, it. I didn't see myself as a director. I didn't see myself mm-hmm. as a VP. And this person saw it in me and mentored me and helped me and encouraged me. I think when you hear those stories, you want to be that person that other people talk about, right? You yeah. want to be able to see something in someone else. But then when you do that and they either don't see it in themselves to a degree that they won't take that help or they just don't want to stay in this career path, it's just a job, even though it's so it's so mission-centered. I mean, you're impacting generations of families. Yes. I mean, I don't know. I'm in the same boat, I think. I, I don't <laughs> understand that. How do you not get excited about that level of impact that – if you help this kid who didn't see themselves being able to thrive in a career, get out of poverty, you know, be able to go on and, and then their, their children are better off and that they can start making more of an impact in their community. And the, the levels of impact you can make in this profession is just amazing. Yes. Oh, it's huge. And, and sometimes the, the issue with that is leadership. One of the biggest differences I've seen between people who turn out to be incredible leaders, incredible, and just blazing trails for students and blazing trails in the profession and all of that type of stuff. A lot of times those people came into strong offices or they mm-hmm. just had that one other person in that office who was like that themselves and, and kind of put their arms around them. I've found that sometimes people don't even get to that point, Will, because their leadership 
didn't encourage it. Their leadership didn't help them connect the dots. You know, when you're 22 coming out of college, which most admissions counselors are to, to speak about the college side, yeah. you're not necessarily thinking about that. You're just thinking like, hey, do I finally make enough where I can have a car? <laughs> right. Like, can I make a car payment? Can I buy or do I have to lease? Like, you know, am I still living with my parents or can I get my own apartment? Like if you don't have somebody within your department who's helping you connect those dots, sometimes that's the reason why they never get that bigger picture. Uh, but sometimes it's because like, hey, I want to get a year's worth of experience on my resume and then I want to go into the private sector or I want to go mm-hmm. into banking or and that's that's fine. But sometimes it's because of the lack of leadership and the the lack of developmental know-how by some directors and VPs and associate directors. We can all think of examples of those VPs who have this huge coaching tree of, I mean, oh, it's yeah. just a powerhouse for people who started out in their offices. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. that's a great point. Second up here, what practices do you use to brainstorm and bring new ideas into your work? Note taking, note taking, note taking. This is, you know, I guess some people would consider it journaling. Mm-hmm. I just take a lot of notes, Will. And and there's been some technological advances that have changed my life. Like the iPad changed my life. Yeah. And w- when it first came out, I got the first generation iPad. And I mean, now I still have it. It feels like it's 800 pounds. And, <laughs> you know, the, the resolution is just terrible. But at, at the time... It was just cutting edge and I took it with me everywhere. And and now, you know, I'm I'm all the way still in the ecosystem and, and I take my iPad Pro everywhere with me. And I write whenever something comes into my mind, I write it down um, using my iPad. And, you know, sometimes it's in the middle of the night. I wrote my uh, speech for accepting the gavel at last year's PACAC annual conference. Um, to start my presidency, I wrote that speech in the middle of the night, 3 a.m. I shot up out of my sleep and I was like, I got it, you know, and just started writing it down and wrote down the outline. And that was really the the basis mm-hmm. of that entire speech that I delivered, you know, three or four months later. But I've also actually gone back to pen and paper, too. You know, there was just something I read. I don't know if it was a study that I came across a couple of months ago. But it was talking about like the benefits of having tactile things. Mm -hmm. There's just something about pen and paper, too, and something about being able to disconnect from technology, Mm -hmm. but still be able to transcribe your thoughts. And so I remember I ordered like this three pack of of notebooks off of Amazon and I said, I'm going to try to do this like pencil and paper type of thing again. And I needed to get like some servicing for my car. Mm -hmm. So I I went to what I normally do, grab my iPad, grab my phone, grab my keys, go out the door. And I said, wait a minute, let me leave my iPad here. And I just took my notebook Mm -hmm. and I just had pages of notes as I'm sitting there in the waiting room with my mask on and and all that type of stuff. I'm just writing, I'm writing, I'm writing. And it was great to kind of get some of those thoughts that were percolating in my mind, get them on pieces of paper. Mm -hmm see some things I was thinking about that just really don't make sense. So now I'm scratching them out physically. And it's amazing how some of those things have really stayed with me. Some of those thoughts that I wrote about in that waiting room at the Subaru dealership, they're still with me and I'm still working on some of those ideas, but you know, note-taking has been huge. I find inspiration from other art forms all of the time and infuse that into my work. So, you know, I, I think a perfect example of this is, a few episodes back on the Bebo University podcast, my podcast, I was thinking about 
how can I help students who haven't had the opportunity to visit in person, which is such a huge part of their college search journey? How can I help them realize that like that doesn't mean they're going to have no shot at getting this thing right? Because that was all of the feedback I was getting from current juniors, rising seniors, was that, Jeremy, how in the world am I going to do this if I can't see the campus? And that wasn't a a problem that I had, Will, when I was going through my search. I'm sure, you know, the same thing with you. This has just been a, a problem that the last two classes I've had. And so I sat down and I was really thinking about it. I was like, all right, I want to do a pod how would I advise a student? Now, one of my favorite movies now came out in the last year. It's Tenet. I'm a big Christopher Nolan guy. And that movie was just, I've already watched it like five times. I love it to death. Always find something new. One of the principal things in that film was this concept of inversion. And I said, that's it. Invert your search. That's what our students need to do. Instead of saying, okay, let me get my feet on campus and then letting that inform what my list looks like, why don't you start with the information gathering? Mm -hmm. Why don't you start to make the connections with admissions counselors? Why don't you start to see, okay, what am I thinking about in terms of program and then which schools kind of meet that need? A lot of times when students were doing this pre-COVID, they were doing it the exact opposite. They get their feet on campus, then they fall in love. Mm -hmm. Right. And they'd say, I have to be here. And then they would almost have their blinders on at times. But that concept of inverting came from a movie I just watched. And so I do that a lot there. Sometimes I listen to music and there's like a thought or a line. And that just really inspires a way I explain architectural engineering at Penn State, my next open house. So, like, you know, I use art in, in its various forms a lot of times to also help me brainstorm. I also make sure I listen. People tell you what's on their mind and what really matters to them if you shut up long enough to hear them. Yeah. And so it's amazing how how much that's aided me in my work with students mm-hmm. and yielding a class, which is part of what we do. It's the ugly mm-hmm. side of, of what we do, but y- you have to think about that. And a lot of times what I use to yield students is based off of things they told me you know, thinking about how did that come up? Why did my question to them elicit that reaction from the student? Using that stuff helps me to brainstorm and realize like, wow, this is really what's on the minds of students. And I need to be prepared to address this with other students down the road that I work with. I'm a big advocate for getting rid of the elevator speeches and the plan presentations. If you can ask them questions, you're going to learn more about them and, and be able to tailor the most relevant information rather than having this canned thing you do every time you meet the student. Exactly. And you know, when with the problem with those canned responses too, is the moment that conversation goes somewhere that you didn't anticipate, you're lost. Mm-hmm. Like I've seen reps at college fairs just completely fumble yeah. over their elevator speech because something was inserted in that conversation with a student that threw them for a loop. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to find their way back to, okay, where was I? Instead of just having a natural conversation. So I agree with you there, Will. You know, what are you seeing and hearing in the terms of training new counselors over the past year? What do you think is changing for the better with the onboarding process? And where are these people going to need more support? That's a really great question. There's something that I've been seeing over the, like, the last three or four years that's had me a little concerned when it comes to the training of counselors. One of the things I love about my job 
is being able to engage with school counselors and college counselors on the secondary side. Uh, people who have heard me speak about this before know that I remained in admissions most likely because of school counselors and college counselors. I, it, w- it became like a family reunion every time you walked into their building, every recruitment season, every panel. And I was just like, I love these people. I love their work. They are underappreciated. I, I can't wait to see them and work with them again, you know? And so I have a lot of great relationships and, and we have a lot of real conversation, like off the record conversation. And one of the things that had been really coming to the fore, well, over the last three or four years was who is training these reps that come into my school. <laughs> and I remember after my visit at one high school, it's, you know, a great place to visit. I love them to death, love their counseling staff there to death. Their department head came up to me after my visit. And he pulled me aside and he said, Jeremy, let me tell you something. He's like, I love when you come to visit. And I was like, oh, thanks. I, I love you too. And he's, he's like, no, you don't understand. He's like, you are so good to the students and to our staff. Let me tell you about the person who just came in here. And he, he begins to go on telling me this story about this rep that came in. And it was a rep that worked at an institution that garners a lot of attention. And it's one of those schools that's like fills the auditorium. Like everybody's going to want to be there. And he says, the rep was running late, never called us. We're all sitting in the auditorium for 15 minutes after the start time. So say it was supposed to start at 10 a.m. It's 10, 15. Mm -hmm. Here she comes rolling in her rolly bag. No apology. Gives a half efforted speech to the students says, are there any questions? Okay, great. And wa- and then walks out. Holy cow. And he said, what, what was that? And I'm like, I'm so sorry that that was your experience. And he says, yeah, but Jeremy, here's the problem. That's not a singular experience. I'm seeing all sorts of things. I'm seeing reps come in with jeans. I'm seeing reps come in in t-shirts. I'm seeing reps that don't spend any time with the students. I'm seeing reps that just page through the book and they've got no extra anecdotes or things to add about that school or any context to add. He said, I'm seeing it a lot. Mm-hmm. And he says, so when you come in and you're not tied to your notes and you're, you're talking to the students in a, in a down to earth manner, you're not using a lot of terminology that's going to exclude half the kids in the room mm-hmm. who don't have that college know-how. He's like, it's refreshing. And I think that that is one of the things that needs a lot of attention in our profession is the training. And I, and I found just because you're a VP or director of admission doesn't mean, you know, anything about developing staff. And so one of the things that I think has changed for the better, seeing that we have this challenge and we have this issue is that with COVID and the adjustments that we've had to make as ACACs and leadership organizations, we now can provide programming in a much more accessible way to reach those people. Because mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, if you're in an office of 20 people, not everybody's going to be able to go to your local affiliate conference or NACAC for sure. I mean, I've been in the profession 15 years. You know how many NACACs I've been to, Will? One. And that's because I entered the presidential stream of PACAC yeah. and they paid for me to go. So if there, if, if Jeremy Branch has that experience, you know, there's so many admissions councils that are never going to sniff that type of higher level professional development. But because of now all of these affiliates and, and, and organizations needing to learn how to exist in the digital space, we're now able to provide programming that reaches more people 
is at a lower cost because you're not putting the travel component into things. And Mm -hmm. I know a lot of us at the affiliate level, we've been able to offer annual conferences for $25 and other workshops, $15 like that. It ordinarily was a $300 program, right? Like let alone travel. And and what I'm seeing is a lot of these younger counselors, they're now able to engage. This is a lot less intimidating when you are walked into your first conference and you're seeing hundreds of people, and let's say you're the only person from your your office that's there. It's scary, man. It's scary. Yeah. You're like, oh my god! Like you you have panic attacks about lunch. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> who am I going to sit with? I don't know anybody here. It's terrifying, right? One of the things that I, I'm sure you saw when you came into the profession that I was like, this is incredible. The camaraderie. Mm-hmm. Right. Like in a high school, you know, there, there's the prep table, there's the athlete table, here's the gamer table. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not overall overarching camaraderie. Yeah. But when you, I went to my first PEC at conference, I'm like, these people are all friends. Like they're all mm-hmm. excited to see one another. And I don't know a soul in here. It's mm-hmm. scary. But now these people are able to come in. They're able to get professional development at a much lower cost. They're able to do it from the comfort of their home so they don't have to worry about traveling or or from their office. They're able to see, okay, this is that higher level discussion that I'm not having in my office, but I really needed. And now I'm excited to remain Mm -hmm. engaged. Like we're seeing a lot of that within the Pennsylvania ACAC, and I know all the other affiliates are seeing it. And that's awesome. I think we're going to see a lot of growth out of these professionals over the coming years. You remain in the profession largely because of the relationships, right? With the school counselors, the college counselors. And that's what, you know, you you keep going back for that. Is there a mismatch that maybe some people are being told or only see that their job is to go to the school rather than your job is to fulfill the mission by building the relationships and supporting the students? It's not just checking things off a box of saying, I went to this school, I went to this fair. I, I definitely think that's part of it. And, you know, I I had a a colleague and I still get to work with him, which is really awesome. But he was always on my back. His name is Dennis, Dennis Mejias. And he was always on my back. Well, like you got to join associations. And I was one of those people like I'm not coming from a holier than thou kind of standpoint. Like I was one of those people, well, that did not see myself doing this long term. Hmm. I wanted a year on my resume and I wanted to roll out. And Dennis was like, join associations, join PACAC, join PACAC. And I was like, dude, I'm not doing this for more than 12 months. No. But then I fell in love with the work. I fell in love with students. And I was like, all right, let me keep going with this. And then in my third year is when I finally took his advice. Mm -hmm. But if I didn't have that constant needling, I don't know that I ever would. And I don't know if I would have gotten past that three-year point. You know, we, Mm -hmm. we talk all the time in the profession that it's three or 30. Right. You're in it for a short period of time or you're in it for a really long period of time. And had Dennis not remained on my back, maybe I would have phased out at at year three. Uh, So I think it's you got to have those types of people around you at some point. Sometimes they're within your office. Sometimes it's the college fair circuit. You know, when the way we're listed in those gyms and and wherever else, these venues where we're having these college fairs, you're next to the same people. A lot. And sometimes you just so happen to be positioned next to that person who gets the bigger picture and says, hey, 
are you a part of this organization? You got to do it, right? And you get that that pushing. Somebody's got to encourage you to do it. And and then you really benefit from it. But I think that bigger picture, the earlier you understand that, the more likely you are to not only remain in the profession, but to do it well. You know, with the ACAC Summer Institutes, these are invaluable resources for new staff to connect to each other, connect with people who have been in it for a while that you might be intimidated to talk oh, yeah. to otherwise. That was, that was my experience, honestly, uh, to learn new perspectives from other institutions. How is that experience prolonged as a cohort model to keep them connected? That is something we're always trying to figure out well. And we haven't, I'm going to be honest, we haven't perfected it at, at PACAC. I will say, and I know my my fellow affiliate presidents will jump on my back, I think we in Pennsylvania have the best one. And we we got in an argument the other You're day. Fun, <laughs> <laughs> I'm throwing it out there. Chrissy from uh Niakak is gonna she's gonna kill me if she hears this, but you know, I, I think we have the best one. I'm I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We we're all great. But I, I one of the things that I've seen is we've really struggled to figure that out, Will, because you have this interesting dynamic, and I've actually wanted to write an article about this for some time and just can't fully flesh out the ideas. But one of the things that I've observed that cracks me up is how often our profession mimics student behavior. And so like what, to give you a little context of what I'm talking about, it's like, it's so funny to me when we go into an in-person conference and you're going into a session, how many people sit in the back Mm -hmm. immediately now we will ride a student to death if they do that in their classroom in high school or on a field trip they, you know every teacher move up front what are you doing mm -hmm. move up front you guys right but it always happens you walk into that first session of the day at your annual conference all those knuckleheads are in the back right like mm -hmm. you know with their coffee and all that type of stuff we mimic student behavior so much things that we tell them not to do we are always doing and so it, it's interesting because it's hard for volunteers to track other people down we always like will deride a student we'll say well you don't know, figure it out right like make it work you know, use your resources but a lot of times like we're like uh, i look i can't keep chasing this person down forget it right but if a student did that we'd be all over mm -hmm. their backs but but it happens i think it's one of the challenges and keeping that energy from the actual program and moving it forward is hard because with our our summer institute in Pennsylvania, it's three days. So, you know, the faculty for the summer institute get there on Sunday. Attendees show up Monday and we're all day Monday, all day Tuesday and a sliver of Wednesday. Right. And we bond. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we actually help them understand what networking is because people are always going to tell them to do it, but no one tells them how to do it. So, we, you know, we fill in those gaps, we give them the bigger picture and, and all these types of things, and it's great. But then when we move on, it's tough energy-wise to keep up with all of these attendees because they it's easier when they're in one cohort mm -hmm. at Bucknell where we hold ours for three days. But then now when they all disperse, what do we do? And then for volunteers, we have other jobs. Right. Yeah. And so it's like once Summer Institute passes, the school year is also ramping up and it gets really hard for them to find the time they felt that they would have to keep tracking these people down. And so one of the things that I've kind of begun to think about is that might be OK. 
there might not be a perfect way to keep the cohort going because there's no way to maintain that energy. Mm-hmm. And when people go back to their offices, not every office is created equal either. And so sometimes their flame that we ignite at Summer Institute is extinguished when they head into their office, right? Or sometimes, you know, they find mentors in, in other spaces and, and they're getting it, but just in a different form. But I found for those attendees who come, and engage and want to remain engaged that one-on-one mentoring is still happening and there's uh i'll give you an example there's a young man he'd probably kill me for even calling him a young man but you know he's <laughs> he he works for penn state his name's donovan and donovan he's one of my boys he came into the summer institute now probably five or six years ago and just really latched on i mean he he was just like yes this is what i want to do this is incredible mm-hmm. And Donovan and I talk all the time. You know, it 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 helps that we work for the same institution, but we're at two mm-hmm. different campuses. But we talk about like larger higher ed issues, access accessibility issues, mm-hmm. inclusion issues. Like we have these Zooms all the time and texts all the time. That's happening with the other faculty members that I serve with as well, with other people. And mm-hmm. so I, I want to perfect and figure out the cohort and how to keep them engaged as a cohort. I just sometimes wonder if by having volunteers as faculty and by having all these people that work at different institutions and who are at different stages of life, Mm -hmm. if it's just a really hard thing to pull off. I think it is. I mean, that that has to be the answer, right? Because it's not happening everywhere. So it must be, must be challenging. I I have to say as someone who, who, did summer institute in indiana for nine years we'll just we'll just leave on the note of well indiana is is, is the best so we'll oh 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 i'm logging off will i'm logging right, off right. <laughs> shots fired here yeah it, it's a interesting it's one of those ideas that i would i would love if there was a good solution i'd love if, if we could brainstorm yes. and, and come up with something some people will of course leave some might yeah. be moving more into the operations side some people might really click with the counseling. Some people might be on a leadership path or the scholarships or they might move to financial aid. So after after a year or two, you could have some major shifts, but if they could all stay connected too, that might make the whole profession even stronger. Yeah, I agree with you there. And and I also, as you were talking, wonder if it's just we have to look at it like yielding a class. And we know going into the year we're not going to yield every student. Now in September, we're we're just so energetic and excited to get back yeah. out there and meet students. Like we feel like we're going to do that. Like, oh man, every kid, I'm going to give them 150% and I'm going to they're going to matriculate and all this type of stuff. Every kid you meet's going to walk onto campus in the fall. <laughs> yeah, I'm like I'm already talking to housing and food services. I'm like, "Listen. We're going to have about 2,500 to 3,000 freshmen coming on to this small campus, right? Because we're, we're yielding every kid, right? Yep. And so that's where we are in September. But in January, it gets a little, it gets realer, right? Some students have already turned down their offers of admission and, you know, oh, I, I went ED here. And so I'm, I'm withdrawing my app and all that type of stuff. And so we're like, okay, well, let's just yield the those who are the right fit. Let's, re, you know, mm-hmm yield the students who really want to be here, you know, convince some other students who don't know yet that they really need to be mm-hmm. here, but they do, you know, maybe that's how we need to look at it with the the summer institutes. Well, like maybe it's just like, we need to focus on yielding those who really are admissions and counseling lifers. 
you know, it's like we're we're in that mine, we're in that diamond mine, and not mm-hmm. everything that we chisel out of that wall is a diamond. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't stop us from searching for the diamond, right? And so that's maybe how we need to think about working and in, in mentoring and developing these individuals because the ones we yield are going to be incredible professionals and the ones that we don't yield kind of riffing off of what we talked about a little earlier. We're like, Hey, there's 4,000 colleges. They're going to be fine wherever mm-hmm. they end up. Like realizing that like, even if somebody doesn't stay in the profession, they're going to be fine. Cause they're going to still be able to lean on these skills. Mm-hmm. It is my belief that if you are good in college admission, you can do anything. Mm-hmm. You can do anything. It's sales, it's customer service, right? It's human resources, right? <laughs> you when you start getting to the higher level things and you start managing budgets, you understand business, mm-hmm. you understand how many students do I need to bring in in order to finance the, the operations of the mm-hmm. entire campus or university at large. All of those skills are applicable to any other industry. I want that that silver bullet. Mm-hmm. I really want it because if we could keep our cohorts more engaged, we're all better for it. I just don't know if it's possible, but it's not going to stop us from trying to figure it out. I like the idea. Think of it as, as a yield process and, and try and apply what we're doing to that same thing. Do you know of any Summer Institute who's essentially running nurture campaign flows to attendees of the Summer Institute? Are we doing those types of things anywhere? We've talked about it at PA mm-hmm. and we haven't figured it out yet. I would not be surprised if there are summer institutes that do. And I'm reluctant to say that because then that would mean that there's another SI that does it better than Pennsylvania. <laughs> and so I don't, I, you know, may, hopefully yeah. there isn't. No, I'm, I'm kidding. But like there, there may be, and I would yeah. love to figure that out. Like right as I accepted the presidency or the nomination for presidency, I was the dean of our summer institute and my director, Michelle O'Donnell, we were working on that. We were like, okay, let's figure this out because we can make this happen. Mm-hmm. And then I had to give up Summer Institute in order to go into the presidential stream because you just can't do no. both. Not and have a job. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, yes. You are you are so right. I have aged tremendously over this last year. <laughs> um, I'm actually only 21, Will. Oh my! And uh, you know it's 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 been rough. Yeah. Um, no one can see the video, so I I think we're yeah. <laughs> okay, good, yeah. good. Don't post it, that headshot either. Um, it's like the uh, the the inauguration and then the last day of presidency. Where you yes. See photos and it's like, oh, so is that the same human being? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's that's exactly what it's like. But I, I you know I'm doing three years less. But you know I would love to figure that out. And if there is an ACAC out there that has figured it out, Mm -hmm. like kudos to them and let me know. And I want to borrow that practice because Mm -hmm. I think that would help those efforts. Yeah. I I mean, if someone is listening and and knows of one, please let us know. Because I think that'd be, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I I like that you brought that up and you wouldn't have a student deposit and then never speak to them again. Yeah, exactly. It's the same, same thing. Essentially they, they are coming into your fold of, the profession why do we cut off that communication then i guess yeah hmm. what can middle managers and leaders do to provide more professional development and growth beyond just the institutional facts and figures so some of the stuff that i i think about is obvious right encourage mm-hmm. professional development mm-hmm. encourage them to join acacs it offer to pay for it Fund it. Like, come on, man. Like some of our ACACs, not not that expensive. Do not make this counselor 
who just got their diploma mm-hmm. and they're coming into the profession, pay $25, $50, whatever it is for those memberships, let alone NACAX fees, which, you know, in, in the structure now is kind of interesting, mm-hmm. but like you can't make a, a, a new counselor or somebody who's like making 25 cents a day anyway, as they come into the profession, pay for their own fees. So like support them in that way, let them see how, how much it matters. And you know what, if you're a manager, if you're a middle manager or, you know, um, hire in your office and you don't get the value of it, like maybe you need to peel back the layers and, and digest like and come to understand, like, why is that? Now that I know, I cannot fathom somebody being in this profession and not encouraging mm-hmm. their coworkers or their their employees to join professional associations. It makes you a much better counselor. Well, once I understood the bigger picture of admission and what other colleges do and what they do not do, what mm-hmm. their processes look like and what they don't look like, I not only gained a deeper understanding and appreciation for the way Penn State does things, but I also saw what we don't do that we need to borrow from other schools or barriers that we are putting up before students that I never realized was a barrier, but was, and it was maybe mm-hmm. keeping students from applying. Like You only get that when you're in rooms with people from other universities talking about the stuff. And so if you're an enrollment leader or someone on the secondary side, a department chair, and you don't encourage your counselors to do professional development and reach out for opportunities and leadership within those associations, I need you to take a moment, step back and look at yourself and say, why is that? Because you are hurting your organization as a whole because everybody in that office is going to be much better at their work. Yeah. Every, every single person. But I also think like we are so good at collaborating in this profession. I, I fell in love with that when I started going to workshops and events. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, I, I remember one of my first sessions that I attended at PACAC's annual conference. And it was like a director of one college, a vice president of enrollment at another mm-hmm. college. And, you know, an associate at another college, an assistant director in another, another university. And they were sitting around saying, well, this is what we did this year to recruit students. And this was kind of our yield strategy. Mm-hmm. And this is how it worked out. And this is what we think we're going to do next year. Let me hand it over to my colleague from our competitive institution. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Phil. And let me tell And I'm like, do their <laughs> institutions know they're talking about this? Right. Because in industry, in private industry, mm-hmm. you never do that. Do you think Google is going over and, and knocking on one infinity loop at Apple and saying, hey, just so you know, with the next Galaxy tab, like this is something we're rolling out. They're not doing that. Like some of that stuff might leak. Sometimes mm-hmm. you're you're working with different component manufacturers and they kind of tell you, well, Google's just, you know, they just asked us for that many components of the same mm-hmm. chipset, right? Like, so it, it comes out, but not like you don't volunteer it. And we're volunteering. And I'm saying, this is crazy, right? Why don't we, though, collaborate more on a lower level within professional development. So if you know, like for instance, like if I know that I'm struggling in my office with admissions counselors, understanding the bigger picture or getting excited, is there somebody I know within PACAC or NACAC that is really good at talking about this? Why don't I bring them in to talk to my staff? Mm-hmm compensate them for their time don't ask them to do it free and all of our universities have different stipulations on that what you can accept and all that so figure out what would work 
But why don't we do that? Like if there's somebody who just speaks and, and just inspires people to look at the work in a different way, say, hey, man, I know you work for a different college or university, but I just really need your help in getting my counselors to understand the bigger picture. Collaborate in those ways, right? Or even with vendors, you should understand what vendors are out there and what they do mm-hmm. so that you understand how we do search. How do we prioritize these different demographics? Like counselors need to know that. Yeah. Y- you know what I'm saying? Like they might not have their hands in it, but like you need to know that. You need to know why if you go to an affiliate conference or NACAC, you need to walk through that exhibit hall. That's like stuff that you can utilize your other colleagues to talk to your staff about. And now that we're so used to Google Hangouts and Zoom and all of these types of things, you don't even have to fly them out to do this. Like set up a Zoom and let's collaborate more in this way and not get so, you know, get our heels dug in the sand because I'm really worried about people not collaborating or wanting to collaborate as much because there's fewer students going around Mm -hmm. and in certain segments of the country there are fewer graduates and we also know as the data is kind of bearing out right now not all college age you know traditional freshman college Mm -hmm. age students are pursuing higher education i'm a little scared that we're going to all start to like retreat into our corners and not share as much let's combat that collaborate and help each other get the most out of our staff I think that's something that's that's missed a lot of times. You will have these internal trainings and and things like that, but if you can have sort of a a group where maybe even it's just once a month, hey, there's five colleges or five campuses that get together and, hey, this person's going to be presenting a topic this this month, that person. And, And you can have this collaborative teaching environment where you're all growing together, you're all getting better. Even if you technically compete, I mean, you can all help each other. So if people want to continue the conversation, how can they reach out and get in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter. I'm spending a little bit more time there. I don't know if that's wise, but I am (laughs) at J branch, like a tree branch PSU. You can also find me through my podcast, the Bebo B E E B O university podcast. Bebo's my nickname for anybody who's wondering that's a family nickname. That's my podcast. And we talk about higher ed and a bunch of other stuff that, Mm -hmm. you know, piques my interest as well. So you can find me there. Instagram. I have as well for the Bebo university podcast, which is, the Bebo University pod is where you can find me on Instagram. So engage, reach out, let's chat a little bit and continue to support each other in this tremendous work that we do. And you can also chat them up about the the president's cycle and what all that's like. Oh, yes. That's been a, yes. you have an interesting one too with <laughs> starting yes, out this is, virtual gavel. And... Woo. This has been interesting, but you know, I'm, Really happy, though, Will, that I can now serve as a resource for people who are mm-hmm. thinking about it at any affiliate, not just PACAC. And I've had mm-hmm. some of those conversations recently, and it's been nice being able to offer up the pros and cons and, and mm-hmm. understand that in a fuller way now. Because you you never know until you come into these roles unless somebody says, hey, heads up, these mm-hmm. are some of the things you want to think about. So at any level, if you're ever thinking about taking on uh, an association presidency, reach out. Let's talk about it. Well, thank you so much for, for joining today. I've really appreciated this chat. It's just a lot of fun to finally get talking rather than just listen to. <laughs> Same here, Will. Thanks so much. Stay safe. Yeah. Thanks. You too. Have a good one.